excuse me, one second. We are going to actually start in our passage we left off with several weeks ago. So you can turn to Acts chapter 26. Before we get there, though, I have something I want to talk to you all about, uh, something I discovered this week. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of a backstory to it to bring us up to speed. It has nothing to do with the study this morning, but I think it's important. Last Sunday was Easter Sunday, and we celebrated uh, the resurrection of our Lord last Sunday. The first song we sang was a song called uh, Forever. Uh, uh, Forever, and then in parentheses it said, we sing hallelujah, if you remember. Monday morning, I went for a run with my neighbor, Beth, and as we were running, we got into a conversation. And I'll try to keep this brief. We got into a conversation about one of the, um, one of the famous TV preachers. And um, my neighbor, Beth, uh, and I got into this conversation. We're talking back and forth about, about this person. And I made a comment that this this. Uh, preacher has some heretical beliefs and and she asked me to send her some links to it and I said I certainly will and so I went home and I I, I started because it was fuzzy in my mind what the specifics were and so I pulled them up to discover what the heretical beliefs were and as I was going through I was like okay send that to her and I sent that to her and sent another thing to her and I sent three or four links to her and um, and I didn't think anything more of it after I read the articles you know I didn't think anything more of it and then <coughs> That evening, as I was thinking about the articles again, all of a sudden it dawned on me. See, one of the heretical beliefs the person held uh, was, um, and, had, and had preached on, talked on, was this idea that the actual crucifixion work of Christ on the cross was not all that was necessary for our salvation. But that not only did he need to die on the cross, but then there was additional, for lack of a better term, warfare in the grave that went on. And the battling continued. And the song says, there was a battle in the grave, a death, I'm sorry, uh, what was it? A war on hell was, was raged. And, and the argument that this preacher gives, and he's part of the Word of Faith movement, or she's part of the Word of Faith movement, is this idea that um, what Christ did on the cross was good and important and necessary. However, there was more that needed to be done in order for the atonement to be completed. Now, I disagree with that completely. But what hit me that evening was in arguing that what this TV preacher was preaching was wrong, I realized that's one of the things we sang this last Sunday. And so it, it really troubled me, and so I started researching it more, and I sent it off to several people who I really respect theologically, and they all responded back to me and said, no, 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 that's totally wrong <laughs> in every way. And so I wanted to let you know that because on the one hand, it's important that we sing theological truth. We can't say, well, it's just poetry, it's not inspired, therefore it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. In the same way, my preaching is not inspired, but it is equally important that I represent the truth accurately. Does that make sense? It's absolutely essential. And in our church, we, want, we desperately want the accurate truth to be represented both in the preaching and teaching as well as in the songs we sing. That's why we, we wrestle it robustly. On the other side of the coin, as a result of that, by the way, we're not singing that song anymore. It's, we're not going to be singing that here anymore. So it's been removed from the rotation, so to speak. Um, but um, at the same time, it, it really challenged me and convicted me about something. We've sung that song probably 12, 15 times over the years. And it never, ever dawned on me. It just never clicked. I don't know if it clicked with anybody else, but it never clicked with me. And all of a sudden, there it was. And it was only because in God's sovereignty, I had that discussion that morning that it brought it to light. And so... It was just a good reminder to me, and I wanted to use it as a reminder to all of us, that we are thinking critically about the truth. Truth matters. And, and what God revealed is what God revealed, and we must be careful that we don't move beyond it. Does that make sense? So as a result of that, functionally speaking, we will not be 
singing that. I'm going to turn this sideways so I don't knock it over. Um, we will not be singing that song anymore, but it was just a good reminder how careful we must be about the truth, and we must approach the truth uh, super carefully. You'll notice occasionally that we rewrite songs that we sing, because we think that, in some cases, we think the songs are recoverable, and so we rewrite them to make them more accurately reflect the truth. Other times, we can't, and so we don't sing them anymore. And then there's some times that we just add to it because we think it's beneficial to add to it. This morning, later on, I think it's the second to last song, or last song we'll sing, we've written a whole other verse for the song. And it's not that there was something wrong, it's just we wanted to make it more personal, and so that's why we did that. So you'll see a variety of changes we do occasionally, and those are all really purposeful changes. In any case, uh, this morning we are in Acts chapter 26. I just wanted to throw that out there for everybody. I did post that on Facebook because I always post the songs on Facebook throughout the week, and I posted that one Monday, and then Tuesday I dropped it. I took it off. I think it was Tuesday. Maybe it was Wednesday I took it off. And then I, I put another blurb out there explaining why uh, we dropped it. And interestingly enough, a number of people responded and said, wow, we hadn't thought about that way before. Thank you. So it was really a blessing that way as well. So, In any case, we are in Acts chapter 26 this morning as we've been taking our time working through the book of Acts. Uh, if you remember, there have been often times that we have taken large chunks of passages, sometimes even more than a chapter, and because of the narrative nature of the story and we've embraced it all as one piece because it's important to see and understand and there's other times we've slowed down dramatically and looked at a couple sentences or one sentence or one verse today we're we are dialing it down even more uh, we are in Acts chapter 26 looking at uh, the passage if, if i may start reading it i will start in verse uh, 12 this is paul's defense in front of agrippa and the text says this, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, we've read this passage numerous times because we've been camping on this for probably about a month now. The first week we went over the, the whole discussion that went on in this section in general in an overview. We focused on that one uh, sentence, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. If you were here that Sunday, I'd encourage you to go back to that text and, or that message and listen to it. Um, we focused on verse 15, um, but today in verse 16, we're going to dial it all the way down. I want to today focus in on one word, and we're going to spend our entire message looking at one word this morning. It is found in verse 16 again, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen it, me and to those in which I will appear to you. The word I want to really dial in on, we've talked about the, the text before, but the word I think is really important for us to look at is the word appoint that shows up in this, in this scripture, in this text. Tom, you already, you already figured it out, didn't you? I saw you, you kind of guessed it. You, I can see you smirking over there. You could actually add into the word appoint the statement. It's a twofold statement. For I've appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you. The word appoint is an interesting word. and It's interesting from a number of levels. We use the word appoint regularly. You know, we don't necessarily in our language use the actual word appoint, but we usually use the word more with a suffix added on, don't we, today? Appointment. Tom, you're at school and you make appointments with students occasionally, don't you? And, or they make appointments with you, or vice versa, usually. Or the principal, that's right. 
<laughs> what, you have to make appointments with the principal? <laughs> Does that have in common, Tom? <laughs> but we make appointments today. If, you, if you're not feeling well, you do what? You call your doctor and you make an appointment. Today with COVID, if you, if you want to, for example, go for a test drive in a car, you usually have to call and make an appointment. We all know the word appointment. We know what it means. You're scheduling something. You're putting something on the schedule. And since, if I may say this, typically, since you are making the appointment, you kind of have authority over that appointment, don't you? Correct? So, in other words, if you're not feeling well, you make an appointment with the doctor, and then later on you start feeling better, you do what? You call the doctor's office, you call the receptionist, and you cancel the appointment. Why can you do that? Because you have authority. You made the appointment. To use your illustration, Tom, a student get call, gets, gets an appointment delivered to him that he needs to go to the principal's office. Who has the authority to override that appointment? Does the student? <laughs> not at your school. No, the student does not have the ability or right to override that appointment. But the principal does. If something comes up in his schedule and he's got to delay it or change it, then he is the one who deals with the appointment and changes the appointment. But we understand the idea, right? We clearly understand the idea of the appointment. An appointment is something that is made, it put, it's put on the calendar as a, as a thing that is going to happen. It's on the schedule. Well, it's interesting, in the book of Acts, the word appointment shows up 12 times. In the entirety of the Old Testament and New Testament, it shows up 199 times. Not the word appointment, but the word appoint. It shows up 199 times. Sometimes it's just the idea of person-to-person -person appoints. Somebody like a king appoints something for people to do, for example. We're not going to look at those this morning. Sometimes, no, we're not going to look at all 199. Whew. Sometimes we have things like God appoints something to happen. For example, with Jonah, God appointed, the scripture says, God appointed the worm to do something. What do you appoint the worm to do? To what? To eat the plant. So that the plant would die. What plant? The plant that God had given, shelter, given him shelter from the hot sun with, right? Um, and so God appointed the next day a worm to eat the plant so that it would die. Guess what happened? The plant died. Guess what happened? The worm ate the plant enough that the plant died. Why? Because the appointment was made, Right? And the worm didn't have the option, did he, to override the, appoint, the appointed event, did he? No, so you find a number of those type of things as well, where there's a, God appoints an activity or a thing to do something. And there's a whole group of those. And although we're not going to look at them this morning, they really do come into play because the consistency through all 199 of them, outside of the ones that are people to people, you know, human to human, all the rest of the appointments, all the rest of the appoint, the words that are the, the passage that talk about God appointing are all the same. That is, when God appoints, guess what happens? It happens. Now, there, not only are there 199 times throughout the Old and New Testament that the word appoint uh, is, is shown or is used, but then we have all sorts of other words that are corollary words to the word appoint. And when we start adding those together, it becomes astronomical how many times it shows up. Let me give you a few of those other words. One of them, the word plan. Now again, plan shows up everywhere throughout the Old and New Testament. But oftentimes when plan is used, the word plan is used, it is used in light of God having a plan. And the theme throughout the Scriptures is that when God has a plan, guess what happens? The plan always comes to fruition. It always does. In other words, another way to put it is, 
God's plan always comes to fruition. In other words, God is never thwarted in His plan. Now, I'd hope we're all very comfortable with that here. Another word that sometimes is really uncomfortable for people, but it's another corollary word. And it comes, it comes in the midst of, or in an understanding of, and in a couple of passages, together with these other words, plan or appoint. And that is the word predestined. The word shows up regularly throughout the Scriptures. Now, when he brings up the, the, the idea of predestined in the Scriptures, it is almost always, when it's talking about God predestining something, it's almost always inevitably talking about, in some way, form, or fashion, a view upon man's salvation. We're going to look at, I believe, ten verses, so we've got to move this morning. Ten that I've chosen to look at with regard to this word, a point. We see it here before we get off of the text that we're looking at because I just want to develop the understanding of the word, a point, because I think it's a really crucial biblical and theological word. Notice what's happening in the text itself. Verse 16, but rise and stand on your feet. Jesus is talking to Saul. For I have appeared to you, notice the two part again, for this purpose. I just want to stop on that for just a second. Interesting statement. God, Jesus, appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus and He appeared for a purpose. Now we're going to find out that's not just an isolated term for Saul. That is a term for all believers. It's used regarding believers in general. He appeared appears to people, in his case he appeared literally to him, but the Spirit at work, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, is God appearing to us by taking us from death to life, Ephesians chapter 2. So, the idea is that God saved Saul, ready, for this purpose, whatever that purpose is. We can make it more generic. He saved Saul for a purpose. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me? He saved Saul for a purpose. Notice it goes on, after he says for this purpose, to appoint you. He clarifies what the purpose is. And he says, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you see, in which you've seen me and to those which I will appear to you. And then he goes on talking about the Gentiles and how he's going to protect them from, from uh, the Gentiles and the, and the Jews. But the point is, he says, I've appeared to you, and the idea of appearing is referencing his salvation. I've appeared to you for this purpose. And the idea is, it, it, the purpose is to appoint you. If you want to get the tightest understanding possible, I've appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you. Everything else explains what the appointment is. So he appeared to him for this purpose to appoint you. Now, I've said it seven or eight times now. And I just want to stop on it before we move off and look at all the rest of the passages. When he says, I've appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you, again, what did I say in the beginning? This is not an isolated statement. Just, In other words, the way to put it is, just as he saved Paul, or Saul, for a purpose, and that purpose was to appoint him to something, which obviously is a ministry, Correct? In his case, to the Gentiles, very specific, to the Gentiles, if we would take that and make it much more general to be much more all-encompassing, but not denying the specificity of the passage, we could equally say, and rightfully equally say in the Scriptures, that just as with Saul, whom God appointed or for, uh, who appeared to him for this purpose to appoint him, in the same way to all people who are saved, as described in Ephesians chapter 2, God saves people for a, I'm making it general, a, indefinite article, a purpose to appoint. So we could say the, we could make it definite, the purpose to appoint. So if you are saved, in other words, you were saved for a purpose. Now, again, this should not be new to you because we've talked about this numerous times. This idea that He saves us so we don't have to go to hell, but so instead we can go to heaven is such a micro-understanding of this amazing thing that God has done and is doing. That He's ordained from the, before the foundation of the world. 
And that is, he did not merely save us so that we could not, so we wouldn't go to hell, but so we could go to heaven, which, again, as we've said every time, is true. But he saved us for, if I may really be specific, for a greater purpose than merely going to heaven and not going to hell. Just as with Saul, he saved him for this purpose, which was an, uh, being anointed to to go to the Gentiles in the same way He saved you and I for a purpose, and the purpose is very, much more similar to Saul than it, is, than it is dissimilar. Whereas for Saul, he was saved for this purpose and appointed to go to the Gentiles. For us, He, he saved us and has not necessarily revealed to us the specifics in the Scriptures of what our ministry is, Right? But he's revealed to us generally what the ministry of the saved people are, right? It's really clear. If we want to be as, start from as general as possible and then expand outwards, what we have is what? He saved people that he saves for this purpose. And, and it is to appoint us to glorify him. Is that not what, Paul, what Saul is being called to? Isn't it? I'm taking the very specific appointment that Saul has and making it more general to understand. If you boil it all away, what God is doing is he's, He's pulling back the curtain, as it were, a bit more than He does for all of us, right? He's pulling back the curtain of His, now I'm going to use another word we already used, His plan and revealing a little bit more of His appointment to Him than He necessarily does to us. But when all is said and done, if you boil it all away, what he's generally saying to Saul is what? I'm a, I, I, I saved you, I appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you to glorify me, to spread my fame, to proclaim me, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Who he is. That's, that's the point, isn't it? And that is not just an appointment for him. The reason why I'm, I'm camping on this for a little bit is because I find too many people who claim to be believers, who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, when push comes to shove and probing begins to happen, the, the default is twofold. If you ask the question, why did Jesus save you? It typically becomes either because he loves me, actually threefold, because he loves me, or it is so that I don't go to hell, but instead I go to heaven. Or the third response is, and this one's one I see most often, especially after I talk about the first two, the third answer I get most often is, uh, <laughs> uh, uh. if you need me to diagram that, I'll do it for you. <laughs> but I mean, that's typically the response I get. Why is that? Could I tell you why? Because I find that most people who claim to be believers... Don't have a clue. Don't have a clue about purpose and an appointment. I find when I talk to most, most people who claim to be believers, they don't have a clue about that. But it's everywhere in the Scriptures, is it not? You wring this book out and what happens? You know what happens when you wring this book out? God's glory pours out of it, doesn't it? It screams off every page in this historic redemptive story that we have that we call the Scriptures, the Bible, 66 books. Everywhere you look, God is after one thing and one thing only, and it's His glory. And He rightly deserves it all. And when we live our lives misunderstanding that 
and missing it completely, you know what happens by default? You know what happens? We start stealing glory from God. That's what happens. And we start glorying in ourselves. Glorying in our great thinking. Glorying in our great skills. Glorifying in, in the products we produce. or Whatever the case may be, we glory in everything but Jesus. We glory in everything but God. Now he's not thwarted, is he? If he used Balaam's ass, he can glory, glorify himself in anything, can't he? Remember the triumphal entry? Jesus said what? If my disciples shut their mouth, if I tell them to shut their mouth, then what's going to happen? The stones will cry out. God's going to glorify himself. All of creation does what? Proclaims the glory of God and the firmament shows forth his handiwork, right? That's Psalm 19. But God in his ordination, another corollary word, God in His ordination has ordained that humans would specially bring forth God's glory. And humans alone would bring forth God's glory in a redemptive way. So, in light of that, we're going to look at a variety of other passages to try to skin out an understanding of this this word appoint. So if you want to flip over to Acts chapter 3, that's where we're going to start. I don't usually preach topical messages, but we're going to, I did one Easter Sunday, and we're doing a second one here. I don't typically do this, but we're going to today, because I think the word is that important. Acts chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 20, we're going to jump back to verse 19. Actually, we're going to start in verse 17. And now, brothers, I, want, I, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer... He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, verse 19, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Verse 20, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Just stop on that for a second. Obviously, this text is written post Christ's life on earth, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. What Paul is talking about here is the return of Jesus. And what we find in the text, in chapter 3, verse 20, Paul talk, I'm sorry, Peter here talks about, and Luke records, the idea that Jesus will return. He calls it the times of refreshing. But the key word is that in the midst of this, in verse 20, he says, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. The key statement is that God has appointed Christ's return. God has appointed it. It's on the calendar. And as we know, unlike the principal who can rewrite his appointments, as we talked about, one thing we know about God is that God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. You know what that means? When God makes an appointment, when God appoints something, that appointment... That thing appointed will what? It will happen according to His appointment. And that's what the text talks about. Christ is going to return and it's based upon God's promise that it has been appointed that He will. Acts chapter 13. What we have in Acts chapter 13 is we have Paul preaching, jumping down to verse 48. He's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. 
Verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We'll continue on. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. We've already talked about the text, but I want you to notice not only do we have the word appointed here, but we have the contrast of the appointed here, her, uh, seen here as well. On the one hand, we have the word appointed show up in verse 48. The Gentiles that heard this are rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, but notice and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Here's something that's really interesting about the text. First of all, you have this statement, which is a very much a corollary to a statement we'll see in a little bit about predestined. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now I want you to notice, so there's some who are appointed to eternal life, and those who are appointed to eternal life in this city, they do what? They believe. And that folds in all that the Spirit does in order for that to happen. Because all that's appointed as well. But notice, it, this gets really interesting. Remember that with Saul, going back to our passage in chapter 26, he appeared to him for this purpose to a point, and then he goes on to talk about glorifying God, right? And specifically to the Gentiles, preaching the gospel. Here, notice what happens. The end of verse 48 and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, go to the beginning of verse 48, those who are appointed and therefore believed, what do they do? They glorify God. Isn't that interesting? What happens is, just like we see throughout the Scriptures, those who are appointed do what? They believe. And what happens? They glorify the Word of the Lord. And they do what? They began rejoicing. Now the implication is not that it was just this one moment in time they rejoiced and it was all over with. <laughs> How do I know that? Well, I know that because if, if the Spirit works according to Ephesians chapter 2, He takes people who are dead in their trespasses and sins and He makes them alive. And He gives them a new heart and He, and, and he gives them the faith to believe. And therefore they believe. And, and if He began the good work in, in you, Ephesians 1, or is it Philippians 1? If He began it, what? He'll be, continue to perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ, which we just saw in Acts chapter 3, that appointed day of Jesus Christ. And so that will, what will happen as a result is this, this rejoicing because we have a new heart that causes us to what? To love what we, what we once hated and hate what, what we once loved. We will find ourselves, therefore, begin to rejoice in what we now love. Does that not make sense? It should make sense. So we find that these people, these Gentiles, are appointed unto eternal life. They believe, and as a result they find themselves glorifying God and rejoicing. Acts chapter 10. An absolute contrast to what we just saw. I don't know if you were listening when I read the opening uh, passage in Psalm 75. We're not going to look at it this morning again, but Psalm 75, I, if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write down Psalm seven, uh, 75 verse 2. Because it's a corollary to this. It says the same thing this passage says, which is why we're not going to read it. But in Acts 10, verse 42, it says this, And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one, here's the word, appointed by God. But notice, now everything changes. To be judge of the living and the dead. Then he goes on in verse 43, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We saw just a few minutes ago that his return is appointed and that return is going to be a time of refreshing, right? That's what it said. 
in Acts chapter 3. A time of refreshing. And of course, that time of refreshing is for those who have been appointed to, to believe or to eternal life. But here, something else is declared. What is declared in verse 42, again, and He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God, that is, Jesus, is appointed by God the Father to judge the living and the dead. So, we saw in Acts chapter 3 that His return is appointed. Correct? We can go to other passages which we don't have time for to go and see that His first coming was also appointed. We know that all the prophecies. But His return is appointed for refreshing those who believe. But here is the warning that just as much as the appointment for for Jesus Christ to return to bring the times of refreshing to believers, equally true, the appointment is also for the time for Jesus to return to judge the living and the dead. Just as much as the return of Christ for refreshing is assured because God's promises are yes and amen, so His return to judge is equally sure. Because God, once again, is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And what the Scriptures are telling us is take it to the bank. If it's been appointed, it will happen. Are you getting a sense there's a surety to this appointing? It is assured. And it it is interesting, and I'm going to go back on this just for a second as an aside, but it's not really an aside. What the the speaker here is doing, and the speaker is Peter, what the speaker here is doing in his declaration, and it's important we see it, He's presenting the gospel and he's he's giving a great warning, is he not? He's giving a great warning. Judgment is coming. And judgment is sure. Why? Because he's been talking about the people and their sinfulness and the rejection of Jesus Christ. And this is an aside, although it's not an aside, it's an aside for our study this morning, is that warning you will find in every single presentation of the Gospel. And that warning is a robust warning. The Gospel, you've heard me say before, and I'm just trying to drill the truth into our brains, that this Gospel that merely says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is totally missing the point. His wonderful plan is only for believers And according to the Scriptures, the appointed ones, all the rest of them don't have an appointed wonderful time, do they? Quite to the contrary, the appointed time for them is judgment. Christ will judge the living and the dead. That is the warning of the Gospel. And as the appointment issue is important for the Gospel, the good side, and I say that purposefully, the good side people to be saved, to be forgiven of their sins and to be saved and be in a relationship with Jesus and the return of Jesus for times of refreshing, equally so, the appointment to judgment must be trumpeted. It absolutely must be and not be avoided. Both are equally true. This idea shows up in Acts chapter 17 as well. Acts 17, verse 31. We'll start in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because, notice, this statement that's coming is coming directly in the midst of a gospel presentation. Is it not? Gospel presentation to unsaved people. In verse 31, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance by raising Him from the dead. We've preached on the passage before, but I want you to notice there's a twofold statement here again in verse 31. Because first of all, He has done what? Fixed a day. It's on God's calendar. He's fixed a day for something to happen. And what is the day that is fixed? 
The day is the day in which He is going to judge the world and His standard is what? Absolute righteousness. He's going to judge it in righteousness. And of this He has given a show. I'm sorry. By a man who He has appointed. So that fixed the day is a, just a calendar statement. The day is fixed on the calendar as it were. And also in that calendar fixed day is the person who's going to fulfill that fixed day. He has been appointed and that is Jesus. And I want to point out to you again that that is fixed. It's appointed and God doesn't go back on His appointments. Does that make sense? This becomes into play because this is consistent everywhere. We're talking about Jonah's, the worm that Jonah, Jonah's uh, story talks about that ate the plant or we're talking about Jesus' return for refreshing, or Jesus' return to judge, or, or as we've seen already, those who are appointed unto eternal life, they're fixed. They're fixed. Every one of them. They're not negotiable. They are fixed. Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22 starting in verse 14. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know His will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from His mouth. Verse 15, For you will be witnesses for Him to everyone of, of you of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. Now, this is talking about His time uh, right after He saved in, uh, going to Ananias. Um, and he, so he's with Ananias, and he's reminded when he's with Ananias of what? He's reminded of his appointment. You see that there in, in verse 14. He's reminded of the appointment. He said, the God of your fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one. So now what Ananias does is he adds a part to the equation, doesn't he? He says, first, he's appointed to know his will. He's appointed him to see the righteous one. He's, he appointed him to hear a voice from the Lord. And all of that came true. So I want you to see that we're appointed, and it was sure again. Let's move on. Hebrews chapter 4, um, verses 6 and 7. It's the passage that, that Tom read earlier. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, talking about the rest, and those who formerly received the good news uh, failed to enter because of their disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And he goes on and talks about the whole rest and entering into the promised land. The point is, the idea is, he's a point, I want you to hear the, the seriousness of the writer of Hebrews here. His statement about a day being appointed is what day? What day is it? Today. The day appointed is today. Do you recognize a couple things about that statement? When he says he appoints a certain day today. A couple things that are really important. Do you sense when he says he appoints a certain day today, do you sense, first of all, the seriousness of it? Today's a really serious, important day. Why? Because God has made a certain appointment for this day. Now, <clears throat> what else do we see about that? Urgency, thank you. There's an urgency to it, isn't there? Don't dilly-dally. Right? And today may be your only chance. Because what does he say? Look at, look at the statement from David. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So what is it? Here's the point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. 
You hear the voice of the Lord today? Today's the day. If you hear it today, today is the day that is appointed. Don't harden your heart. Don't do it. Now, sometimes God is merciful, isn't He? If you think about the, the backstory to the statement in Hebrews, the children of Israel had how many days? I'm not good at math, so I'm not even going to attempt to, it, to do it. But 40 years worth of days, didn't they? They had 40 years worth of todays. Did they deserve 40 years worth of todays? No. But God mercifully gave them 40 years of todays. Where every single day they did what? They heard the voice of the Lord. Did they not? Remember, He was there. Pillar of fire by night. Pillar of smoke by day. Moses was with them in their presence. Proclaiming the truth. They had the Ten Commandments with them. They had the tabernacle. And 40 years worth of today's, what did the people do? They complained and hardened their hearts. So what was the ramifications of that? They didn't enter into their rest. It's a horrifying statement. And the implication of this is pretty clear. He uses the term today singularly. We know the storyline. There was 40 years worth of todays. But we can't bank on another day of today, can we? Are you hearing the voice of the Lord? Are you hearing the voice of the Lord? I'm not talking about physically here. I'm saying, is the Spirit at work on and in you? The warning is don't harden your hearts because you're not guaranteed that you hear the voice of the Lord tomorrow. And frankly, right now, this is a horrifying statement. Could I just interject a story I read yesterday? I sent it to, some, to several of you. A couple days ago, there was an article that came out in Christian Post of another prominent Christian leader who is connected very tightly and intimately with John Piper, who has officially come out and declared himself not being a believer. And he says, You know what? I'm happy. I'm happy. What's going on? And he's not alone. It's happened repeatedly. Repeatedly. Josh Harris is another classic example. Worked as a pastor in Mahaney's church. And now he declares himself not being a Christian. What's going on? And I'm reminded the scripture is talking about unless the Lord cut it short, it would be almost as if the very elect could be deceived. They cannot. Today, if you hear his voice, what? Don't harden your heart. What's that, Tom? Heed it. Heed it. That's what the warning is because there's a day appointed. There's a day appointed. John chapter 15. Verses 12 through 17. <clears throat> this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These, I command, these things I command you so that you will love one another. In this text, it's interesting. Now we have 
we have a, a connection between two concepts that are, as we mentioned at the very beginning, are, are, are very interconnected. Verse 16, you did not choose me, which is another word that goes along with the appointed. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Boy, that's a loaded question when we think about the word appointed, isn't it? He chose us who believe, as we saw all the way back to Acts 13, He chose us, and He says, I chose you and appointed you. And remember we said His appointment is what? Is it sure? It is sure that you should go and bear fruit, which means what? Yes, it's talking about sanctification. And saying, in effect, what he's saying is if he appointed us to be sanctified, that means what? We will be sanctified. We will, progressively, we will grow and change and become more and more, like John said, like our new father God and less and less like our old father Satan. That's what he said. That's what he said. And if, the, if we are appointed to that, then should it not be expected that a believer will bear fruit? Should it cause you to really start questioning if you or others who claim to be believers are not bearing fruit? Yes. Should you be concerned? Yes. And I I say that, and by the way, notice what it says. Appoint you that you should go and bear fruit and what? And your fruit should what? Abide. What does abide mean? Remain. Be evident. Right? It should be evident. It should not be hit or miss. Oh, it's here today because things are going on, but for the next 10 years there's nothing. That's not the idea. It should remain. You've heard me use this, this phrase before. It's, it comes out of, more out of economics, but it's a great understanding. Too often, they talk about it from an economic standpoint or investment standpoint. They talk about it this way. They say, not that I invest, but the whole idea has intrigued me. <laughs> Just wanted to put a point of, point of clarification. <clears throat> What's that? Yeah, exactly. Thank you. But the idea is, that too often what happens in people when it comes to investing is they fear when they ought to hope and they hope when they ought to fear. And I remember the first time I heard that, I said, man, does that have spiritual implications. Here's what we do. Someone claims to confess Christ, claims to be a follower of Jesus, claims to be a believer, claims to have received Jesus as their Savior. We look at them and no matter how hard we look at them, we don't see fruit. But we hope that because they prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, raised a hand, or whatever, that they're saved. We're hoping when we ought to fear. We're hoping when we ought to fear. Because what their life is screaming out, now I'm not on the throne. And you're not on the throne, right? God is on the throne. God's the judge. I'm not the ultimate judge. But he has called us to evaluate one another or to judge one another by their fruit. You shall know them. Now, I've said it before, but I'll ask the question again. Is it a crisis? If I look, I'm going to use you as an example, Tom. If I look at Tom and I don't see fruit in his life, Understanding that I'm finite in my evaluation, right? And I'm not on the throne. But I look at Tom and I don't see fruit. I do, but I'm just using it as an illustration. If I look at Tom and I don't see fruit, is it a crisis if I begin to preach the gospel to Tom? It's a crisis if I don't, but it is not a crisis if I do. Why? Because if Tom's really a Christian, what does he need to hear? He needs to hear the gospel. If I'm a Christian, what do I need to hear? What if I am bearing fruit? Do I need to hear the gospel? Yes! I still need to be reminded of the gospel. Don't I? 
And so does Tom. Is it a crisis if I fear because I don't see fruit that I begin to minister the gospel to Tom? It is not a crisis. Is it a crisis if I look at Tom and I don't see fruit and I just camp on my hope because of his testimony? Is that a crisis? It's absolutely a crisis. Why? Because he says he's appointed Tom, if Tom's a believer, to what? To go and bear fruit. And that that fruit should remain. And if he's appointed it, because we know the surety of God's appointments, if he's appointed, what's going to happen? He's going to bear fruit. And if he's appointed, what's going to remain? The fruit will remain. Moving on. Next passage. Job chapter 14. Got to grab a couple Old Testament ones, right? Job chapter 14. Starting in verse 1. Man is born of a woman, is few of days, and full of trouble. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Does that sound familiar to everyone here? (laughs) Jim, you should really be feeling it now. (laughs) I always have to pick on Jim, you know? What's that? Yeah, exactly. Man who, who is born of a woman is a few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are, what? Determined. And the number of his months is with you. And you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand in his day. Job is very bitter at this point. He's been through tough stuff. He's still speaking about the truth, but he's struggling with bitterness. But in the midst of his bitterness and his struggles, what does he declare? Well, he declares very clearly that our days are determined. Verse 5, right? That's another word. By the way, there's another corollary word to appointed. Our days are determined. The number of of his months is with you. Talk about God. And you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Again, God is the one who appoints. Our days, our months, our years, and everything in between is the implication when he says he cannot pass. We cannot live longer than we're appointed to, and we cannot be other than who he's appointed to us to be. And we know just like we've seen everywhere else, his appointments are sure. His appointments are sure. Let's move on. Ephesians chapter 1. Starting in verse 3. We're running out of time. I'm going to be real quick. Although this is probably the most important verse out of all of them we're looking at. Verses, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be the, to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." What do we see in this text? And again, we could spend the next eight, ten weeks on this text. But I want you to notice, 
plan shows up. The idea of appointed shows up. The predestination shows up. Chosen shows up. I don't know if I said it, but plan shows up. It all is lumped in here together, is it not? It is all lumped in together. And the idea is the entirety, the entirety of our salvation, justification, and we'll find out in the greater context of Ephesians, even our sanctification, I mean, even our glorification, is all lumped together in, uh, under the umbrella of God's appointing ministry. I would encourage you to read the text a lot more in depth, <laughs> but it is there. Last passage for the morning. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. <clears throat> For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is the, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the, grace of God's, the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me... Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the, to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Here we have once again in this text this idea of purpose. You see the, the, the context. He's talking about, what, what is this context in this text? It's His conversion, isn't it? His conversion is the context. And he connects it to his ministry, the purpose he's called to, that is, he was appointed to glorify God by ministering to the Gentiles. And he transfers that in 3, 1 through 13 to who? He transfers it to everyone. Everyone who is appointed to eternal life. And again, that appointment is sure. We're out of time, but I want to, take, I want to, I want to conclude by brag, dragging this all together and say this. I think it's really important that this word, this word appointed is recognized. Tied in with the word purpose, tied in with the word plan, and all the other words that we saw that are all intertwined together with this meaning. It is crucial, it is absolutely essential that we understand that Christ, or first of all, that God's purpose is sure. His appointing is sure. And we know it is. The scriptures are really clear about this. And so first, we can be confident that his first, that we didn't actually look at the, at the passage but we referenced, his first appointment of Jesus to come the first time was sure. And you could add to that the appointment of John the Baptist, right? And the appointment of all the, all the disciples and everything else is all sure. The appointment of, his, of, of Saul being saved and having the ministry to the Gentiles was sure because God appointed it. And then we could talk about salvation as we talked about. The, the, the salvation that has come to us as believers is sure. And why is all that important? Why is this discussion, this, this theological discussion that has been wrestled with for, for centuries, for millennia, why is it so important? Because at the end of the day, we must understand that our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. 
That's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, my only hope is not that I have my own righteousness that's going to get me into heaven, but that I have a righteousness that is what? Not my own. In order to obtain a righteousness that is an alien righteousness, it must be the perfect sacrificial lamb's sacrifice and His righteousness that has been given to us. Our only hope is that when we are viewed, we will enter into the time of refreshing because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross and because of what Christ has accomplished in fulfilling what God has appointed. That is, that we would be given a new heart. Ephesians chapter 2, we who are dead in our trespasses and sins, that He would give us a new heart and that He would give us faith to believe. And, in, and as a result of, of what He's appointed, we would therefore receive what? His righteousness. And therefore enter into the time of refreshing. Enter into the time of rest. Enter into His rest. Why do I share you all this? Is because you know what we just surveyed? We surveyed the majesty of Jesus Christ. We surveyed the majestic working of Jesus Christ. We just surveyed the majestic appointing ministry of the sovereign God. And if that doesn't bring us to rejoicing, watch out. Because He's appointed a day. Today. So watch out today lest any of you receive a or have a hard or cold heart. Because if we do, you know what's going to happen? One day there's also an appointment. Not of a time of refreshing, but just like in the wandering of the wilderness when almost everyone did not enter into their rest but entered into judgment. Just like there was that appointed day, there is a point, an appointed day yet to come for judgment. And He will return. Jesus will return and judge. Seek Him while He may be found. He is a majestic King. He is a majestic Savior. He is a majestic God. And if what we saw this morning is true, he certainly is worthy to be praised. He is certainly worthy of much rejoicing. And he is certainly worthy of all glory. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. As we continue to sing and then leave here, Lord, I pray you will help us, that you will move in us. Because these things are not things that we can do on our own. We desperately need your Spirit to be at work in us, opening our eyes to see. We cannot produce fruit on our own. As Paul Tripp said, the best we can do is staple dead fruit to dead branches. We need you to do your work. Because we work, because you are at work in us both to will and to work for your good pleasure. So, Lord, I ask you that you will move mightily in us. That we would bear fruit and that it would remain. And that fruit would be for your glory and praise. That you would be trumpeted and that the light would shine, blazingly shine out in the midst of a lost and dying world. Your gospel is glorious because you are glorious. Help us to see your glory. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing and rejoice in our Savior.